Uh, we're in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. This is different. You know, this is different. Uh, we are making our way through Samuel's, first and second, the Kings, the Chronicles. Uh, we want to look and understand the prophets and kings. Uh, I'm very excited about this, but I also know like people are like, really? When I tell other people like you're doing this, it's like, can people handle that many books of the Bible? I'm like, yeah, they can. They can. You can. I know you can. There's something about us just working our way through these stories where I feel like we would never get certain insights, certain narratives, uh, certain things that I think shape us and form us to this day. A big point of, of, of Samuel, of why this book exists, it's the story of the nation of Israel and how they got their first king and how they got the kingdoms eventually split into two kingdoms. It's like kind of the story and it's their history, but it's so much more than that. There is this heart cry among the people of, we want a king, we need a king. And God gave them the king they wanted with Saul. And now God's going to, and we saw last week, he brings to them his king. We see that King David is anointed king. Uh, we see this king from Bethlehem who's a shepherd, who's a warrior, who's a worshiper, who's a poet. And obviously this king is so clearly a representation and a picture and a, just a taste of King Jesus, who's also a shepherd, who's also a warrior, who's also a poet. I mean, basically, as we read the scriptures, we have to see God's heart from the very beginning is there's going to be little shadows and little insights of the Messiah to come. You have to read the scriptures in a new way. I feel like this is so different and profound. And I know you know this, but just stick with me. When we read the scriptures, we have to see Jesus. Jesus said, when you read the scriptures, they speak of me. And so you want to see how do these little narratives, maybe it's a type of Jesus or a picture of Jesus. Maybe there's like anti-types. Maybe there's some good and bad. We learn. So there's like these different narratives that are really kind of creating within us a hunger for the Messiah, for that shepherd from Bethlehem, for that warrior, that king, that poet, that worshiper. Who is that? And so David, and we mentioned this last week, is the number one most mentioned person in the Bible outside of Jesus. I mean, David has over a thousand references to his name. He's mentioned uh, in 66, like there's 66 chapters like devoted to his life and story in some capacity. There's, I think, 59 references in the New Testament to David. Jesus is not called the son of Moses or the son of Abraham. He's called the son of David. David is a very significant and key figure. And so we're going to spend some time on David. David still at this point, he was just anointed king last week, chapter 16. He was just anointed king. Uh, Saul, oh, that's beautiful. Yes, heavenly music. Saul, um, Saul is still the active king, and he still will be the active king for a while. The journey and relationship between King Saul and anointed King David is fascinating. David's integrity, his respect and honor for a pretty terrible guy is on another level. There's a lot to learn from David. There's a lot to learn from David. And we're going to see how this David reflects a greater David. And I want us to like do that. And there's, yes, there's life lessons here. Uh, but obviously, I think it hopefully creates our heart posture, like a hunger for Jesus, uh, a hunger for the greater David, seeing Jesus in a new way. Now we come to chapter 17, and it's a very well-known story. Probably the most infamous battle of hand-to-hand -hand combat in all of the scripture. It's the story of David and Goliath. And I'm excited. I've actually, it's crazy. I've been teaching since like through books of the Bible since I was 18. For like 16 years, I've never taught on the story of David and Goliath. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, I probably avoided it, to be honest. Like, oh, everyone knows that story. I don't know. I've just never, I've never taught on it. And here's why I guess I'm, I'm bringing this up. Um, I think for so many of us, there's almost like this childhood connection to the story of David and Goliath. I read this story to my son plenty of times in different books of the Bible, and they emphasize different things. Maybe we have some like childlike takeaway. I, I want us obviously to kind of forsake that way of thinking. This is not a fairy tale story. Uh, this is a real man, a real young man fighting this giant of a character. 
And I want you to see just this, this idea of them representing uh, their people. Whoever wins, in a sense, takes it all. And I want us to kind of just see, I, I think, the hopelessness of the crowd, the fear in Saul and his brothers. I want us to see, I think all of us hear this story and we think like, this is the greatest underdog story. Maybe that's our takeaway. Look at the underdog, David and Goliath. It's crazy how much the story is reflected in culture. You see David and Goliath like referenced in movies or TV shows or literature or artwork. I mean, this story is infamous, so well known. And I think it's so much more than an underdog story. I, I think it's, it's a profound story. Someone that seems undefeatable is defeatable. I think there's some less lessons. I think like, yes, we can apply it. Like there are giants in our lives and let's slay those giants. But I think it's so much more than that. I think we can take that. I think we can learn from that. We're probably not David in the story. We're probably the crowd going, oh, what's going to happen? And, and I just, I do want us to like, yes, learn from him and his character and his courage. Absolutely. But I also want us to see that there was a greater David who fought a greater enemy and his name is Jesus. And he didn't conquer a giant. He conquered sin, hell, and death. And his victory is now our victory. Because he won, we win. And I do think this is just a picture of, of just the gospel itself. And I want to hold nothing back. Like, whether you're new to church or whether you've been in church for a long time, we want you to see Jesus. I don't want to read the scriptures and miss Jesus. I don't want to miss the gospel. I don't want to miss all that God has done for us on our behalf. What David did on their behalf, the people of Israel, Jesus has done that and so much more. And so we want to like see it through that lens. And I want, I want our hearts to like rejoice in the gospel. Like, thank you that we too have a champion who defeated a greater Goliath. Yes. Amen. His name is Jesus. And I, I hope like the, the battle is actually 10 verses, but we're going to read like 50 something verses. Okay. So bear with me. Uh, this might be a lot more reading and uh, I'll have certain points that are longer than we got to kind of make our way to the battle. You're probably like, come on, get going. So let's get going. Uh, let's pray. We're not going to read because we're going to read it in a second. So let's pray and invite the Lord into this. Father, we just want to say um, thank you so much, the fact that we get to gather. Um, I, I know that it's easy for me just to just assume we're always going to have this. And I just want to say thank you. Thank you that we can gather in this way. Thank you that we can lift up your name, Jesus. Thank you that we can open up the, the word of God without fear. Thank you that we can communicate it. And um, we just ask, God, that you would be seen, that you'd be here that this would not just be a story. We know it is. It's a, it's a true story that shapes so much of our lives, but it'd be so much more that, God, we would just rejoice and celebrate in you and what you've done and what you've defeated, what you've done on our behalf. Uh, but, Lord, we also ask that we would learn, that you would create within us this boldness, that you'd create within us this courage, that you'd create within us this, this longing and trust for you despite what outside voices might be saying. And so, Lord, we just want to say thank you. There is no one like you. We just want to praise you now in your wonderful name. Amen. Uh, you know, this summer, we just got back from like a little family road trip, kind of classic thing. And my wife, um, we kind of didn't have the best itinerary plan. Uh, this is like the first time. We were like going to see my brother in Ohio and kind of make our way back and kind of figure it out. And we saw like this little boat rental place. They're open for like an hour or two more. We're like, let's just do it. Like we asked, get a little deal discount because only an hour left. And we got this little like, I don't know, pontoon boat or whatever it's called. We got a little boat. And the guy's like, oh, you got to take the boat over here. There's a cliff jumping spot. The kids would love it. And just check it out. Whether or not you do it, we got to go. So we go. We're on the boat. We're making our way down. And we see, like, these, like, three, I don't know, 16, 17, 18-year-old boys, like, cliff jumping. And it was, it was, you know, it was fun looking. It was like, I wanted to do it so bad, but I'm like, I'm like getting old. I'm like, I don't know if I could, my knees can take it. So I like, watched them doing it. They're, like, jumping off. And, like, two out of the three were doing it. And there's one boy who, like, wasn't. He was like, his friend's like, do it, do it. And we're, like, on the boat, like, parts. And it must have been so intimidating for us because, like, there's three of them. And we're just, like, watching him. And eventually we're, like 
We're like, do it, man. You can do it. My, my son's there. I mean, he's seven. My daughter, she's three. They're like, come on, jump, jump. And like, his friends are like, bro, like even the three-year-old's telling you to jump. You got to jump. And I, I felt so bad because like we, it was like a good 10, 15 minutes of park there. Like all these wave runners pull up and like he doesn't jump and they just drive away. And everyone's like, bro, you're wasting everyone's time. Jump. And it went from like, our, we're like, hey, Micah, Kinsley, like encourage him. Like say, jump, you can do it. Like, like you can do it. We believe in you. After a few minutes, it's like, my son's like, why isn't he jumping? He's like, hey, don't be a big baby. <laughs> he starts, I'm like, it turns from like encouragement to trash talk. They're like, bro, the seven-year-old's calling you out. And I'm like, okay, we got to go. It, I just, it was, I felt we left before he jumped. It was awful. But it's funny, we're talking about it, you know, with my son and like, would you have done it? Like, how, how could you trash talk? Like, you would have done that. And it was one of those things for us where it kind of got a conversation going. And my, my wife and I were talking. This like was one of those trips where we wanted to see our, our, our son especially kind of take some risks and do some things. My daughter, who's three, is kind of the more adventurous one. She's the one who will be like, let's go. You want to go ziplining? She's ziplining into water. She's, she's crazy. Like if she, she has no fear. I don't know if it's a second child thing. I don't know if it's because she has an older brother, but she's the one like, that we'd have to like, she just walk into a pool, sink to the bottom. We jump in after her, but let's her up and she's like laughing. That's just her personality. And so my son, though, it's been different. It's like, come on, you can do it. But this summer was like a, a, I think like he kind of got off his box this summer. It's cool to see him slide down Sliding Rock in North Carolina or jump off these little rocks and go on rides he never went on. My wife and I, we're so proud of you. And it's, it is interesting to kind of watch that development between like fear and courage. And you're like, why is one fearful? Why is maybe one more courageous? How do you grow fear or how do you grow courage? How do you develop courage? Where does courage come from? You know, the word encourage is like the idea of like speaking courage into. Like, how do you speak courage into someone, not trash talk, but how do you speak courage into it? And, and where does that ultimately come from? And here's why I'm bringing this up. This is a really interesting story where Goliath, we don't really see it this way, but Goliath obviously had a lot of courage. He's not afraid of the Israelites. David also had a lot of courage. But what was their source of courage? And I think we don't know if like the, the difference maybe between the two. They both had courage. And maybe one had a false sense of courage. And one had a legitimate, true understanding of courage outside of himself. One trusted in himself. One trusted outside of himself. And I want to look at this story in hopefully a couple of different lights as we approach it. And it's a lot of verses, so bear with me. I'm going to throw up kind of how we're going to break up this text today. But the first thing is this, the giant enemy, uh, the runt boy, <laughs> the cynical voices, the source of courage, the notorious battle, and the lessons we learn. Uh, it's just a way for us to kind of break this down because a lot of verses we're going to walk through. So let's just, let's just dive right in. Uh, we're going to look at verse one. This is the giant enemy. He's being introduced to us. Goliath the giant from Gath is being introduced to us. First Samuel 17 verse 1. It says, now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at, gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain uh, on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. That's the Elah Valley. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his speared head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, 
This is what he shouts. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And you are not, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul, the king, and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. All right, the great enemy. Uh, This is not the first time the nation of Israel is face-to-face with a giant. You might remember the book of Numbers, chapter 13, and and the promise to go into the promised land, and the spies go out, and they saw giants in the land. They're like, we're like grasshoppers in their eyes, and that didn't you know, play out very well. There's Joshua and Caleb had faith, but because of the lack of faith, they couldn't enter the promised land for 40 years. Like, you might remember that story. Now they're face-to-face with another giant. Uh, I got to explain, obviously, the height thing, talk through that, because, like, this is so interesting. There's so much, like, what does this mean or look like? Uh, it says he was six cubits in a span. A cubit, the way the Bible would measure things is from, like, your elbow to, like, your middle fingertip. So uh, if you go like this, this is a cubit right here. The idea is, like, it's probably around 18 inches. Uh, so six times 18, and then a span. A span would be, you know, from your thumb to your pinky. Like, this is a span. Uh, everyone's span might be a little different. It could be six, eight, nine inches, depends. I, I don't know. I think mine's, like, six. I have no idea what. You guys can do this. It's fun. It's fun. Uh, there's some speculation around this. So some would say he's nine foot six. That's the idea. Six cubits and then a span. Nine foot six, nine foot eight, nine foot nine, almost 10 feet tall. Uh, there's some ideas around this, like truly a giant. Maybe he's, uh, some, from, being from Gath, some have speculated maybe he's also part of like the giants that they saw originally in Numbers 13, like a legitimate true giant. This is, it is fun or interesting to kind of speculate a little bit. You don't want to get too lost in this, uh, but some people are like, there's no way. Nine foot six, nine foot eight, giants, come on. Uh, you might know of like different heights and like the tallest man, Guinness Book of World Records or kind of like that wax museum. They have that guy named Robert, I think Wadlow, that's how you say his name. There's a picture of him. He was a guy that was like eight foot 11. Uh, it is funny, I saw his body at the wax museum, not his real body, but like the wax version of him. It's unbelievable. When you're standing next to him, like I'm at his like hip bone. It's crazy. You're like, oh my gosh, this was a human being who walked the earth. Crazy. Um, so some have been like, hey, eight foot 11, nine, you know, this is not impossible. There are some texts that uh, will actually say it's four cubits and a span. So some would say he's like six foot nine. Um, there are people who kind of lean that way. I'm only bringing this up because if there might be spectators, be like, oh, no, you got it wrong. Um, I do think that, that it's implied that he's a giant. This is different. This is unique. I would more lean towards he's taller, but uh, it's not far-fetched to believe 6'9", especially in a culture back then where probably, and most scholars do believe the average uh, height of the Jewish person back then was about 5'5". Five five. So, like, imagine um, you have, you know, imagine you have LeBron James 6'9", decked out in armor versus, like, Danny DeVito, okay? <laughs> like, just to get that kind of thought in your mind. Either way, it's a giant. Okay. Either way, you're like, oh man, like this is the average person. Like, remember Saul was head and shoulders above the, the, the common Jewish person. That's like why Saul was king. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. So you could say maybe he's like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, Who should be fighting this guy? Saul. Who's not fighting this guy? Saul. Uh, the reason why I, I do also want to bring up the height thing and just some of this is it's really interesting. There's more detail dedicated to what he's wearing his armor than like any other person in scriptures. And it's trying to paint a picture for us. Like, why is there so much detail? Like 5,000 shekels like that. It's believed that his armor is about 125 to 150 pounds. His spear, like the tip of his spear mentions, that alone is probably 25 pounds. I mean, try throwing maybe 19, 25 pounds. Try throwing that. Like try, he was a, a big dude, a strong dude. I don't know why, like, I just laugh now because I'm like, gosh, how big was this baby? He must have been a massive, scary baby. Like, my, my baby, so Wyatt's three months, he was, he's nine pounds, five ounces. Like, that was 
big to me. And he's eight days early. I'm like, he's just a chunk. If you see him, he's just a chunky man. I don't know why I'm, I'm talking about him. A little, we have baby Goliath right now. That's how I view it. Um, but I was like, man, this, kid, this guy is massive, and he's strong. And there's like so much detail. Actually, when it says this coat, look at verse uh, five. It says he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Um, when you look up that word, it actually kind of describes like this coat of armor that he was wearing. It's, it's described as scales. Now, there's like speculation around that. Uh, because they worship the god Dagon, maybe it scales like a fish, maybe it scales like a snake, but you have like this scale-like armor that's heavy, that's weighty, that's powerful, that's strong. It's very intimidating. You have this snake-like figure dressed in this scale-like armor. Some have likened it to, remember what Saul did? Saul fight, fought a guy named Nahash, King Nahash, which names means snake. We talked about this a few weeks ago, but there's probably that hope in Israel, like, wow, here's Saul defeating this snake, Nahash. And the idea of that kind of goes back to the symbolism in the very beginning of the garden. The symbolism of the Messiah to come shall crush the snake's head. And by so doing, his heel be bruised. And maybe they hoped that was Saul. He crushed the snake. Now, now it's maybe David. But there's these little, and the reason why I'm bringing this up, there are these little references throughout the scriptures of like, hey, one day there will be someone who will snake, defeat the enemy, the snake-like enemy. One day there will be this uh, savior-type figure who will crush the snake who'll crush the head of the snake. And there's these little glimpses in scriptures I do believe that God is saying, like, is, is this the guy? Is this the guy? And it's to create a longing for who is that one that would come from Eve? Who is that Messiah-like figure that'll crush the head of the snake? And it's almost creating this longing within the people. Now, a reason why I'm even bringing this up is it describes him, notice it says a champion, verse four, a champion named Goliath of Gath. There's a lot there in that word, a champion, not just because he probably like won every battle he faced, obviously. The idea is like he probably did win a lot of one-on-one battles. But what does champion mean? The word champion simply means the man between two or the man of the between. The idea of that is I am representing, like I'm between you, like you and the army behind me. I'm an ambassador. I'm fighting on their behalf. If you want to get to them, you got to get through me. I'm the champion. I'm the one sent out. This is actually used in Greek and Roman literature as well, and I want to get to that later. But remember that word, a champion, because the idea is we're going to offer our champion. Now, where's your champion? Where's the person that's going to stand between us? The one that fills the gap. Where's the person that's going to represent us? Who's going to fight on your behalf? Who's your champion? And so it's a sense it's supposed to be like a champion versus champion. And David is the champion, but he's not the likely champion. Like he's not a guy you'd look at, but that's the champion. That's definitely the champion right there. Obviously, he's like an unlikely hero of the story. And we're going to see this throughout scriptures, this idea of God saves through weakness. God saves through the thing that you're like, you don't think, that shouldn't work. It's unlikely. It's weak. It's soft. But God's like, that's when I'm glorified the most. In your weakness, I'm made strong. And there's constantly this idea of like, here's a champion. It's very, so think about the detail. It's very clear. I would lean towards a nine foot six. It's very clear. Here's this nine six, you know, man that has a spear, heavy 25 pounds, 150 pounds. Like here, it's very clear who you are. You're the champion. It's not so clear that you're the champion. And it's, it seems to be that way. That you're like, I just don't know how God will do this. I don't know how God will work this out. What is it really saying here? You know, I love what one author says. His name's Robert Alter. He says, the thematic purpose of this exceptional attention to physical detail is obvious. Goliath moves into the action as a man of iron and bronze, an almost grotesquely quantitative embodiment of a hero. And this hulking monument to... Uh, an obtusely mechanical conception of what constitutes power. He's basically saying it's so clear this guy represents strength and power. It's so unclear that David represents that. And the reason why is look at his confidence. He's shouting. He's mocking. 
He's the enemy who mocks. He's the enemy who shouts. He's drawn a lot of attention. He's all bark. And he's doing this, and it's, it's, it's been very clear. And then on the other hand, you have another man, we'll see very soon, who also has a lot of courage. But his courage is not from the outside. Where does Goliath's like, courage come from? It's so clear, from himself. I'm strong. I'm powerful. I have the best weapons. We read a few chapters earlier. How many swords were there in the kingdom of Israel? Remember? Two. Crazy. It's two. Like, it's very clear that there is, this is a strong, powerful man. And then it's not really clear with David. But they both have courage. But again, one has courage that comes from himself, and one has courage that comes from outside of himself. One has courage, and it's gonna, we're gonna, we obviously know how the story ends. It's not, no big surprise. Goliath loses, by the way. But the idea is, you're going to see in this, sto- in this story, maybe this self-confidence or this self-esteem in himself, it led to his downfall. This confidence in me, I can do this, I can accomplish this. When David, you'd never see him boast in himself. You really see him boasting in the Lord. Like, and you see how the Lord prepared him for it, yes. But you see, like, this is the Lord's battle. You'll see these phrases. It's like, oh, wow, his courage is coming from outside of himself. And there's something we learn from this. So that this, there's this great enemy that's clearly portrayed. Verse 11, by the way, it says Saul and the people are greatly afraid. They're dismayed. Saul should be fighting. You're the tallest. You're the biggest. You're the best. You're our champion. That's why we chose you to be king. But he's afraid. And he's not fighting. So that's the giant enemy. Number two, we're going to see the runt boy. And I think that's fair. Uh, chapter 16 actually uses this word in Hebrew, katan. It's basically saying not just young, but little. And it, it's almost like, it, it, like not, there's not a fearful appearance to David. Keep, we'll keep reading. We'll probably go through this part a little bit faster. Verse 12, the runt boy. Now David, so we have the enemy. Here's the hero. Now David was a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse. We saw that last week. Uh, Jesse had eight sons. And in the days of Saul... The man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, uh, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest uh, followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. It's introducing to us David just really quickly. It's making it really clear he's the youngest, not just youngest like in age, but also probably the smallest, the tiniest of them all. Uh, He's going back and forth between feeding his sheep and going back to them. The idea was he's a good shepherd. He's a faithful shepherd. He's not forsaking his sheep. He's going back and forth. Like, I want to be here, but I'm also here. Um, Keep in mind that Eliab, the oldest brother, he was the one that people thought would be king. That's what Saul saw, or Samuel saw Eliab last chapter and goes, Eliab, surely this must be the king, right? And he's not. His youngest brother is going to be king. There's going to be bitterness, as we're going to see there. But it's really interesting. We see him being the youngest. We see him being faithful. It just kind of introducing us to us his character. Uh, so, so David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep. Look at verse 16. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. So 80 times, morning and evening, he's like, who do you got? Who are you sending? Who's going to fight? Morning and evening, morning and evening. Verse 17, and Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp and to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of the thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. I want to make sure you really went there. Uh, here's why this is so interesting to me. As, as his dad's like sitting, he's an errand boy. All right. Here's David, who's an errand boy. By the way, last chapter, what was he? He was anointed king. He's anointed king. He's still tending the sheep, and he's running errands. I mean, this is interesting to me, right? Like, you can imagine, like, I, I'm sorry, but this is probably my sin and pride. If I'm anointed king, my dad's like, send me on errands. I'm like, do you know who I am? <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm the anointed king. 
There's such a humility and grace in David that the author is showing here. There's such a, yeah, whatever the need is. The sheep, I got it. The errands, I got it. It's, it's showing us David's character right, right away. Keep going. Verse 19. Now Saul and, and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, for battle, army against army. Verse 22. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out in the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And this is, David heard him. He heard him this time. Verse 24. Keep going. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter. We'll see that's Michael, his daughter, and it's a boy name, but it's a girl. Uh, and it, <laughs> make his father's house free in Israel. That's what he's going to do. Um, they're not going to pay taxes. Verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by, by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. The idea is David is there now. He hears Goliath kind of calling back and forth, the morning and evening thing. And David doesn't ask. They say, you know what happens to the man who kills him? They'll have great riches. He gets to marry the king's daughter. You're not going to pay taxes. That's like the best thing of all. Like, look at all this. This is what happens. David didn't ask. But if you notice, he's, he's, this is the first words, by the way, verse 26. These are the first words David communicates, like, we've, like our first quote from David. He's like, what shall it be for the... It's not like he's like, I'm, I want these riches and wealth. See the, the last phrase, it's kind of revealing. He, he says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's like, what shall he give? I don't, I don't care about that. It's not about that. Who's this guy that thinks he can defy the armies of the living God? He's more concerned, obviously, with God and his character than he is the, the wealth and riches. It's not like, what are the riches? Can you tell me again? He's like, no, no, why does that even matter? This guy's blaspheming God in God's name. He's defying the armies of the living God. He, again, you're, you're seeing David's like heart here. He's like, you guys, why are you, I didn't even ask about the riches. Like, you're the one who told me. But I, why don't we care about what's really important here? God's name is being blasphemed. And that's not okay. He's like, David had this like righteousness, this integrity, this heart to preserve the name of God, the people of God. Uh, he's like, what's going on here? And there's such a beautiful desire. You see like his motive more being revealed. So here's Goliath, the giant. Here's David, the run boy. And you're going to see next, what we're going to look at, number three, is the cynical voices that come. You see this righteous desire come up. You see David be like, this is not okay. And then notice this, right when they start to see a little bit of faith kind of coming from him, you're going to see people being very cynical. So here's the third point before we get into the battle, the cynical voices. Let's read verse 28. Verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? This is such a brother-to-brother conversation. I love this. Like older brother, what have I done now? Come on. What have I done now? Was it uh, not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. I want you to see right away, David's like, this is not okay. This is not right. Look, he's blaspheming the armies of God. And Eliab is older brother. Like, who do you think you are? 
You just, I, I know your heart. Isn't that crazy? That I know your presumptions. I know the evil of your heart. I want you to see this. It's crazy how he's faced right away with a cynical brother, with someone who also saw him be anointed king. I'm sure there is bitterness in Eliab. It's like, I should have been the king. I'm the oldest. I'm the strongest. Like I, obviously, there's something about me that he saw. Like that, that should be me. And he sees his little brother coming. He goes, I know your hearts. It's crazy how I've noticed with people who are very cynical, there's almost this idea that they know everything. A lot of times, like, I know, I know what's going to happen. I've seen, been there, done that, seen that. There's something like God's not going to do. God's not going to intervene. Who, are you, who do you think you are to get involved? You're a nobody. There's something about these cynical voices that David faces, and it's like water off a duck's back. It kind of blows my mind. David just faced with cynicism right away. Right away. It's like as soon as he shows a little bit of faith, people are like, who do you think you are to even consider this? I know why you're here. I know your heart. I don't know if you've ever had someone kind of treat you that way or like speak to you that way. It's like, I know your heart here. You're like, you do? Wow, I didn't know you're God. That's amazing. You know my heart? It's fascinating. I don't know if you've ever maybe been that way towards someone else. Maybe you're more the cynic. Maybe you're more the person like, I know their heart. Like, do you? I know why they're here. Okay. Wow, I didn't know you're like the all-seeing God. I don't know if you've been faced with this. It's amazing to me how David's going to take this cynical kind of response also from Saul in just a second. He's, and it's mind-blowing that these voices are so loud, but there's obviously another voice in him that's even louder. The enemy is shouting. He do this. David heard, so here's the enemy shouting, his brother's mocking, and there's still this like resilience in David, like, no, I'm going to keep going. I think there is something about, we're going to see the source of it in a minute, but there is something about, though the outside voices are loud, I have this internal voice in me that's even louder, and that is God's word, and that is God's spirit. That even when the world says you can't, God's in me saying, with me, all things are possible. There is something about that that we have to really grow the voice of God in our lives to face the outside voices. I think that we'll see that source in David. Because I can't imagine being this young kid coming up, and think about all, like, my heart would be like, dude, it's okay, you're young. You're naive, right? Like, I really do think there's this young kind of naivety response we give to young people in their faith. That we, it's almost like a giant faith killer. It's like, but yeah, but you're like, you're like 20. But you're 18. You're like 16. David's probably like 15. Yeah, but like, who do you think you are to go out and do this? It's crazy how sometimes we can speak on behalf of the enemy in that way. Like, listen, maybe there's an element where it's young and being naive. Maybe there is that. Maybe, you know, but maybe we're too quick to say that. Maybe we're too quick to say to young people in their faith, yeah, but who do you think you are? You're too young to do that. I mean, listen, the Bible is constantly filled with young and old of people who did great things for God. Moses, 80, right? That's when he started his ministry. You, you can be old and start your ministry. You can be young and start your ministry. But I really do feel like sometimes we go, ah, oh, we're just going to chalk it up to being young and naive. Can we just, and it's like, no, maybe the living God is in him. Maybe the desire for something great is from God. And yes, you have to watch out for pride, but is anyone handling it with grace and love towards David? No. There's just constant, this negative thing. So we're going to see the same response from Saul. Keep uh, reading. Uh, verse 28, we saw that his brother, so verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. Like, do you hear this guy? Uh, and he sent for him. Saul sent for David. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth... And he has been a man of war from his youth. <laughs> it's like, you're just some young guy. This guy's been fighting since he was a young guy. Like, again, who do you think you are to go out and do this? This is why I find this fast. Just this little part of the story is so interesting to me. David is going, bringing them food, bringing them cheese, like bringing them goods, trying to take care of them, trying to love them. He's serving them, and they're being cynical towards him. I mean, obviously, this is showing us a great reflection of Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. 
I mean, this is such a picture of the gospel. That's John 1.14. Uh, that's Isaiah, or John 1, 11. That's Isaiah 53. It says he was despised and rejected by men. There is this like element that we see in David, like, wow, David's going to his very own, his own blood, his own people, and they're rejecting him. And it's like, do you not see that this would be the Messiah when he comes to his own? Hey guys, I'm here. I'm here to stay. I'm here to serve. Jesus came as the servant of all, and we still rejected him. David comes with a servant-like mentality. They reject him. Jesus comes with a servant heart, and we rejected him. And we're seeing these little glimpses of the gospel. Like, who are you? this man from Galilee. Who are you, this untrained man? What rabbi did you study under? But it's almost like, who are you? In this weakness, apparent weakness to the people, but God's like, no, this is my plan of salvation. What appears to be weak is my plan of salvation. And there's constantly just this idea of the gospel being threaded throughout this. Saul's like, ah, you're just a youth. He's been fighting since his youth. And again, I want you to hear this. Can we just talk about this? Because I do think like in the church so often, there can be very cynical and critical voices. I think so often it's like, and it's hard. It's hard. You might go to a small group trying to get encouragement and you get the exact opposite. I would say this, go back again. Come with a servant-like heart like, heart like David. Don't give up on that. Let the voice of God be greater in you than that voice from the outside. And these are not the enemies that are being cynical. This is his own brother and his own tribe. They're the ones being cynical. And I would say like, we, I know we have to acknowledge that. Sometimes the church can be the most critical, cynical thing. And I know it's turned Christians off many times, our, our family members off, like I don't want this. They're so critical, they're so judgmental, they're not helpful. That might happen. But I would encourage you like David, don't get bitter. Don't turn it into like a battle of words. David's like, I'm just gonna let my actions show. David still has this mentality and this source of resilience that where does that come from? So here's what we're gonna see, number four, Leading into verse 34, we're going to see the source of courage for David. Where, where, where is the source of courage? Where is the source of boldness that comes from David? Let's keep reading. Number four, verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Can you hear how he describes? Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. <laughs> and if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Yo, this kid is epic, all right? Verse 36, your servant has struck down both lions and bears. <laughs> oh my. And sorry, I don't know why that had to say it. Oh gosh, I even, uh, uh, sorry. I've struck down lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear this Lord will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. I want you to see, obviously, this like progression that is happening. What is the source of his courage? You, it, it's it's kind of twofold. It sounds like he's boasting, obviously, in what he's done. And in some ways, yes. Like he's going, look, I, I've, I've snatched uh, a lion. I've snatched the sheep out of a lion's mouth and a bear's mouth. I, love I grabbed him by the beard. Like you think about the lion's like mane. I've grabbed by the beard and slayed him. Like, oh my gosh, who are you? Right? If a lion comes, I'm like, oh, it's just one little lamb. No big deal. Him is like, no, I'm going to chase it. I'm going to pursue it. I'm going to rip it out of its mouth. Unbelievable. The character, the courage. And there is this idea of like, okay, you were faithful. And I can't even call that a little thing. Like, can we call a lion and bear a little thing? I don't think that's fair. You're faithful in that, but yes, you can take on giants now. You can take on the greatest warrior that's ever like communicated we see in scriptures. I mean, it's so clear. There's so much text dedicated to who Goliath is, what he's wearing, how big he is. This is the greatest enemy they've ever seen. If you can take care of those lions and bears, you can take care of that. And there is almost that law of progression. It's almost like that snowball effect in some ways. You know, I've talked about this a lot with some Christian friends, I feel like recently, but that idea of, um, it seems like when you maybe fall into a sin, sometimes it opens up like, well, I fell here and I'll fall here and I'll fall here. And like your sin can snowball. It's a very dangerous thing, and it can grow and grow, and you're like, I hate that. But in a similar way, 
When you like fall into like a pattern of like actually enjoying the Lord, seeking him, hearing from him, worshiping, that little snowball effect can also happen towards righteousness and it can grow and like small victories can lead to greater victories. And that's what we see happening with David. Like, hey, I've had these victories in these areas and now it can lead to more and more victories. I mean, we see that being communicated in Luke 16, 10. Jesus said, the one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. I wouldn't call that very little, but it's like, man, you're faithful with these sheep. You can be now faithful with the people of God. And represent the people of God. So you're like, but what, where's the source of courage? It sounds like he's boasting in his work. No, actually, again, if you read it in verse 37, he says, the Lord who delivered them, the Lord who delivered them will also deliver this giant. Like David knew, even when I snatched that sheep out of the bear's mouth or lion's mouth, that still wasn't me. That was the Lord who delivered them. You know, it reminds me of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And he goes, and I've labored more abundantly than you all, and yet it was Christ in me. He's like, I've worked hard, but it was still the great. Anything good in my life, and it looks like, wow, you did this. You worked for this. He goes, even that labor was the grace of God. Like, even any victory, like, you're such a good, I can't believe you did that, David. It's like, even that was the Lord. Like, you can't boast even in what he's done. He goes, the Lord who delivered them. The Lord who delivered those sheep, he'll also deliver uh, this giant into my hands he realizes it's the Lord who's ultimately doing it. Now again, you have Goliath who goes, it's all me. Look at my size. Look at my strength. Look at, look at my armor. Look at, it's me. David's like, it's not me. It's the Lord. They both had courage, but the source of their courage was dramatically different. One was from inside, one was from outside. I do think that so often the world tries to, you know, develop this source of courage from the outside. But look at you and like speak these words over you. And it's like, you know what? I just need to be reminded of Christ in me, the hope of glory. I need to be reminded of, I am what I am by the grace of God. Even if I worked harder than you all, I still am what I am by the grace of God. It's just all grace. It all goes back to God. He's the only one who can get the glory. He's the only one who can get the credit. And this is what he's bringing up. And again, we see in David, what do we see? David as a shepherd was not some hireling. Meaning David was not some shepherd for hire who didn't really care about the sheep. You see this character, and David's like, I, it's not that you, I'm, it's, you can't buy me out. I, I, it's not about that. Like, I just truly care for sheep. I truly care for the name of God. I truly care for the people of God. You know, John 10, 12, it's, Jesus said, he who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And that was obviously not David. He'd not ever see the lion or the wolf or the, the, the bear and flee. He ran to it. David is not like that. He's a reflection of that great shepherd, of that chief shepherd, who's like, no, no, I'm going to fight the enemy. I'm going I'm to stand up on their behalf. And it just allowed him to take on more and more. Now, keep going. Here's what's really interesting, right? You know this part of the story, verse 38. Saul's like, all right, the Lord be with you. Now, verse 38, what happens? Still part of uh, the story, verse 38. It says, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head, kind of copying Goliath here, and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tied it in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook, and he put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Obviously, and maybe you've heard these parallels, but it's fascinating. Saul's like, take my armor. It, like, who is Saul at this point to give advice on how to fight anything, right? Saul's like, Saul's like, hey, just take my armor. Like, Saul, what have you done, man? Like, come on. He's like, come on, this is what we got to do. Take my head of bronze, you know, take my armor, my coat of mail. Like, take this. You're going to fight in the same way. You're, you're going to kind of model the enemy. You're going to take the enemy's tactics and do it that way. David's like, I, I can't do that. That's not me. That's not me. 
obviously just kind of goes back to sometimes we'll try so hard to maybe do or copy what the world does, or maybe we're trying to fall in someone else's shadow, and it's like, okay, what has God put in your hand? What has God given you? Like, I, I haven't called you to be like Saul, David. I've called you to be David. You know, and I think sometimes like, we try to maybe model or mimic or copy someone. God's like, but I've called you. Like, what have I placed in your hand? I placed in your hand, David, a sling. That's what you're going to use. What has God placed in your hand? That's so often what he wants to use. What has God placed in your hand? What has God placed in your hand right now? What skill? What maybe, you know, it, uh, just information or knowledge on a certain topic? What has God placed into your life? And God's like, this is what I've given you. Like, you don't wear someone else's armor. Wear the armor I've given you. Wear and take and use what I've given you. And there is that mindset a little bit. But I love this because sometimes so often we can go, what is the world doing? They're wearing this helmet of bronze and their co- this coat of mail. Okay, let's do the exact same thing. Sometimes I think the church can be guilty of we want to do what the world is doing. When God's like, mm, I've not called you to do what the world is doing. I've called you outside of that. Actually, Paul says it in this way in 2 Corinthians 10.4. Listen, he says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to pulling down of strongholds. The world might say, okay, the way you got to face this problem, just throw money at it. Throw education at it. Throw psychology at it. And the scriptures go, God's warfare is a little bit different. Our weapons are not carnal. Meaning we're not going to maybe use the same tactics the world might use. We want to find God. We want to pursue God. God, what have you put in my hand? What have you put in my life? What is it you want to use in me right now? I think there's just like, we, ha- we cannot always just model what the world does. Goliath had a helmet of bronze and this coat of mail, so therefore I am. Saul had that, therefore I am. And I was like, that's not what I have for you though. You're not going to fight the way the world fights. You're going to fight on your knees. You're going to fight in prayer. You're going to fight in worship. You're going to fight differently, David. You're going to fight the way you've been used to. Actually, I, we wrote it down this way. The courage David had on the battlefield was cultivated in the wilderness. He's like, oh, I got really familiar though with that sling. You know, like that's like what I used and God's like, what I've cultivated in private, now it's time to use that in public. What you've done in private with me, shepherding my sheep, take that same mentality and let's make it public. And it does start in private. It does start in private. So, meaning so often God wants to use us, but before it's ever public, it's usually and it's always really private. Sometimes people want, like, want more, more opportunity, more ministry, more whatever, and God's like, it has to start privately. It has to start when no one else is watching. It's kind of crazy to think like what he did. Like, I feel like these stories, I would tell all my friends these stories. It's like, I, I feel like people would have known this about, I feel like it's just so kept close to him. Like, okay, you guys need to know. I, I fought a lion and bear. Like, like, I feel like that would have been around if people knew that. It's like, but it, it started private. It became public. We see the source of his courage. Where was it? He goes, for the Lord, the Lord who delivered them will also deliver this giant. He knew the source of his courage. Courage. Amen? Now we're gonna see the battle. Ready for the battle? Here we go. Verse 41. You guys read 40 verses. I'm so proud of you. So good. 41. <laughs> We're going to see the notorious battle, number five. Uh, and the Philistine, so David, he, he approached the Philistine, and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. So Goliath even has a shield bearer. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth. Again, the verse looking down on his youth. He was a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I love that. I got to throw that in. And the Philistine said to David, again, remember, he's more like that pop star. That's who David is. He's more like, who's that pretty boy over there? And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, by the way, this is great biblical trash talk. If you want to like find trash talk. Then David said to the Philistine, oh yeah, he goes, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. 
Amen. The God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. He tells him what he's going to do. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle. David runs. He runs toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag. Remember, he had five stones. He put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and he he slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. Listen to this. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it, with his own sword. So, okay, you can't even call this a battle because it's over in moments. But this is fascinating to me. You know, this battle that takes place, he, David runs over, he has five stones. By the way, he's like pointing this out. The idea, like why five? David like, oh, what if I miss? I got four more. I don't, the idea is this. Actually, we do see in another text that Goliath has four brothers. I think it's almost that perfectness. I'm not just coming from you coming for the other Goliaths. He did have four brothers. So he grabs five stones. I got one for you and four for your brothers. That's honestly how I view it. And he goes to him. He runs at him and he slings it. Now this trash talk that's taking place, a lot is revealed. A lot is revealed in Goliath in his confidence. And like I said, a lot is revealed in David in his confidence. A couple key verses, verse 45. David says, I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. See, David knew whose name he's representing. He knew where the power lied. We have to know this. There is power in the name of Jesus. It's not just a worship song. There is power in Jesus' name. There is that idea in Acts 4.12. There is no name given among men by which we must be saved. There's something about the name of God that is so holy. If you remember, even like in the, that we call it the name of God, like the tetragrammaton, the idea like we don't, we maybe lost the actual name of God over time. Looking for like Lord. When you see capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, it's like this Hebrew constant sort of like Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-H. We don't really know how to say it. But the idea is like the God's name is so holy, so mighty, so powerful. And then obviously Jesus comes on the scene and we're told that his name is Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And there's still some Similar power, obviously, the same power that is in the name of God, the name of the Lord, in the name of Jesus. But why I'm bringing this up is David knew whose name he was representing. David was not representing his own name, but he's representing God's name. There's something about this because I think that people so often want like the attention, like, hey, David, you can marry his daughter, no taxes, a lot of wealth and riches. But is that what he's, is he fighting for his name? No, he's fighting for the name of God. That's very clear in verse 45. This is the name on whose behalf he's fighting for. Like, I think so often it's very easy to fall in the trap to fight for our name. I want to be famous. I want to be known. Maybe you'd never say that, but in your heart of hearts, I will have a name one day. David's goal was, I will make God's name great. What a beautiful goal. Not my name. My name will come and go. How many names have come and gone before us? How many names are forgotten? How many names just are here and gone? But Jesus the name above all names. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the scriptures are incredibly clear. There's something powerful about the name of God. David's like, I come in that name. I come in the name of God. I'm here to make his name famous, his name known. And David has this pure motive of like, it's the name of God here. That's what I'm fighting for. Look at verse 46. He says, I'm doing this, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. I want all the earth to know that our God is the true God, is the one true God. 
That is his heart. That is his desire in this. I want them to see the one true God. Verse 47, for the battle is the Lord's. I mean, just circle that, underline that, remember that. I mean, whatever battle, it's like the battle is the Lord's. This is not my battle. I mean, this is that source. This is, that, this is so key to everything. When you realize this is not my battle, this is the Lord's battle. And, and I want us to see, obviously, they're showing us something very clear. We're told in the first 10 verses, Goliath is like, hey, I'm going to fight. If I win, we, we win, we all win, and you're our servants. If you win, we're your servants. Whoever wins here, wins it for everybody. Like, we're fighting on behalf of everybody. And if you win this battle, you take it all. And that was somewhat of a common thing. It's like, if, if this person wins, you know, we're now slaves and subject to them. But actually, history kind of tells us after these battles, so often what would happen, it's not like, like, oh, well, we lost. It's usually that the winning side would feel so like, yes, we actually just took out their greatest champion that now we're going to go and attack. Like, now they're, they're think about the, the morale kind of, of, of that, like that army. Like, oh my gosh, we just lost it. So this is that kind of mindset that it would happen soft, like now we're going to go charge, now we're going to go attack. And here's why I'm bringing this up. Goliath is called the champion. He's the man in between. He's the man between the two. But David is the real champion. He's the man as well in between. And here's why I love about this. Uh, I believe the author of Hebrews picks up on this and uses the Greek word of this same idea of champion. And this is true. Let's, let's read this. It's Hebrews chapter, one, or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Listen to this. And you guys know this verse very well. It's a very well-known verse. The author of Hebrews says, Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. The reason why I put this in the NLT, because this is actually a better translation. The idea is the uh, Greek, it's this archegos, or archegos. It's this word champion. It actually comes from like this idea of arch or archego. So the idea is he's saying there's a champion. Jesus is the champion of our faith. If you've ever heard that verse, like he's the author and finisher of our faith, it's more fair, the word is more fair to say, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So here's the idea. Goliath was the champion, right? He's standing in between. But Jesus is the champion. He's the one who won on our behalf. You see, a champion in the Greek and Roman cultures kind of suffer two things. A champion would be this. Like imagine like some sort of Greek mythology story. Uh, imagine that maybe it's like a Hercules type where people are going to shoot arrows, a bunch of arrows about to take out some innocent people. And the idea of this, uh, this arch ego or this archegos in Greek, the idea was a champion would stand in between and I'll take all the arrows from the enemy. It's not going to hit you. I'm going to take the wrath of the enemy. It's going to hit me. The other idea of this was I'm not just going to take the pain, but I'm going to actually defeat on your behalf. This arc or ghost, this, like, I, this idea of this champion was I will fight on your behalf and win on your behalf. So either I'm taking the, the, the toll from the enemy or I'm winning it for you. And in a sense, that's the idea of Jesus. He did both. He took the wrath, but he also was our victor at the same time. The idea is cha- Goliath will be our champion. He will be the one who stands in the gap, but we have a greater champion. Yes, David was the champion who stood the gap. David was the one who won. But it's obviously a small taste as the author of Hebrews would say, no, 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 do you not see this? Jesus is the champion of our faith. He's the one who stands in between the two. He's the one who took on the wrath. He's the one who won. He's the one who defeated the enemy. Jesus is the greater than David who was also the champion. 
The idea is you have a champion. The enemy of the world has a champion. It's this great enemy, this giant, the Goliath. It's, it's Satan. It's the idea of like you have a champion, but we have a greater champion who also fights on your behalf. See, what I love about this story was obviously it says the stone sunk into his head and he falls face forward. And the idea is like he probably is dead, but let's just make, make it really clear that he's dead. David's like, I don't have a sword. Let me take the sword of the enemy and chop off his head. Let's make it really final. Let's make it really clear he is dead. He uses the, own, the enemy's own sword against him to defend defeat him. That tool, that sword, that thought would bring him victory actually brought his defeat. Why is this important? I love how one pastor says it. He says, both David and Jesus snatched the enemy's weapons and used them against them. David lopped off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword, just as Jesus set the captives free by the way of the cross. That instrument that we thought would be victory, the cross, the enemy thought would be victory. It ends up being the instrument that is our victory. And this is the idea. It's like it's such a parallel of the gospel. I'm going to take the enemy's tool, the enemy's instrument, that, that thought would bring them victory. But that will be our victory. Let's make it final. Let's make it super clear. See, Satan is defeated. We have a greater champion. The idea is we're not the David in the story like we like to think we are. We're the ones on the crowd going, uh, what's going to happen here? And the idea is Jesus won, therefore we win. Jesus was our substitute he was the one that says, let me stand in the gap. Let me be the champion. Let me be the one that goes in, and my victory now is your victory. See, this is the gospel. The gospel is not, go be David and fight all your Goliaths. The gospel is Jesus is the greater than David who fought the greatest Goliath, who fought the greatest enemy, sin, hell, death. Jesus is our victor. Jesus is our champion. And then again, there's a temptation. Listen, we can learn from David, absolutely. We can say, God, give me this courage from David, absolutely. But if, if we're only there and not seeing that, we're saying, no, no, but thank you that the son of David defeated the greatest Goliath of them all. We cannot miss the bigger point of this story. Jesus, again, when you read the scriptures, they speak of me. There is this idea of Jesus, you are the greater than David, the son of David who defeated the greatest Goliath. You are our champion, as, as the author of Hebrews says. You are our champion who initiates our faith. Thank you, Jesus. This is a way for our heart to read this, like, and even the people's heart. Like, did he crush the snake-like man? This one, this scale-like armor, did he crush it? Like, what happened? And it's like saying, yes, there'll be another one to come who will crush the head of the serpent. And his name is Jesus. All of this is just a, a gospel. All of this is just pointing to the, the gospel our Savior, our God. Are you guys following? I'm just hoping that's like connecting. Uh, Tim Chester, I love this, said, now David defeats Goliath with a head wound. David crushes the snake and he brings down the giant. It's just that same idea. It's with the head wound. Our Savior defeats the great snake. So here's the idea. Here's my last point, number six, the lessons we learn. Here's the lessons we learn. As soon as David wins, the Israelites realize we all win. They say, you defeated the biggest giant, the biggest enemy. Now we're also going to participate and fight the little enemies. Jesus won the war, but we're still fighting to an extent. So look at verse 51. Let's kind of read how it closes out. Verse 51, it says, then David ran, stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head. It says, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. So they're running. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the, wound, the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharon as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. The thing I want us to see is as soon as David wins, they're like, Israel's like, they're bold now. Let's attack, let's charge, and they win, and they plunder the enemy. And the idea is Jesus' victory is now our victory. But also there's some, this idea that we're, we're still fighting, right? 
Like the cross happened. God's plan of salvation happened. We're saved because of what Jesus did. He defeated the great enemy. But there's still little battles in our life. If I could put it this way, one of the takeaways is because Jesus took out the real giant in our lives, we can bravely face all the lesser giants. And that, there is an element of that, the lesson we take away from that. Jesus defeated the greatest giant. Everything else from there, it's the lesser giant. I want to see, like, I don't want to, I don't want to, like, overpass like this, but obviously we have giants in our lives. But do we realize that Jesus defeated sin, hell, death? Do we understand that his victory is our victory? Do we know that what Paul says in Romans 8, that you are now more than conquerors in Christ Jesus? Jesus is truly the conqueror, but because he's the conqueror, we're now conquerors. He faced the greatest giant, we can face the lesser giants. And this is what that story tells. You're not David. I'm not David. Jesus is David. But his victory is our victory. And because he defeated that giant, we can defeat the smaller giants we're going to face. Amen? You follow me? And here's my last like, point. Obviously, the victory's done. We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Victory happens. We're fighting from a place of victory. It changes how you and I fight when you realize, oh my gosh, we won. Jesus won. His victory is my victory. So I'm not fighting for victory now. Now I'm fighting from this place of victory. And that's what Paul is basically acknowledging in Romans 8. So hey, when it comes to the sin in your life that you feel like you can't defeat, because like Romans 6, 7, and chapter 8 are basically, like there is this sin that overtakes us, and there's this battle between my flesh and my spirit, and I feel like a loser, but according to God's word, he says I'm a conqueror, and this is reminding us, because Jesus conquered, we too conquer. Because Jesus defeated sin, we can defeat sin through him, in him. The, the idea is you don't have to keep losing to the Goliaths. You don't have to keep losing to the sins in your life. If you feel right now like you're plagued, like I cannot overcome sin, I just, I'm going back to the same sin over and over and over again. You guys remind Jesus, you already won. You already won. I need to remind myself, I need, I need to pre- like, preach the gospel myself that I'm not fighting for victory. I'm fighting from a place of victory. And that will change how you compete. That'll change how you fight. It's so different. And that's Romans 8. It's just introducing to us, like now walking in the spirit and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Like now walk in the spirit. You can face those lesser giants because Jesus defeated the greatest giant of them all. Yes, amen. Listen, I want you to know this Jesus. I want you to know this champion. I want you to know that I could never be David. You could never be David. I want you to know it's exhausting trying to be David. But it's beautiful when you're on the sidelines going, David won. I mean, you look around like, oh, that means we won. Oh, snap. There's something about that. There's something about going, yes, thank you, Jesus. Your victory is my victory. I worship you. I, I'm not the hero of my story. I'm not the champion of my story. I'm the one that needs a champion to fight on my behalf. And that is Jesus, the son of David. Know this Jesus. Believe this Jesus. Trust in this Jesus. Stop trying to fight. Rest in the finished work of the cross that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Rest in what he's done for you. Fight in the sense of you, be, you defeated the greater giants, I can defeat the lesser giants. I want to invite you to know this Jesus. If you don't know this Jesus, I would love, we would love to come and talk with you and pray with you and say, come know this Jesus, this champion, the, the author and finisher of our faith. That he won his victory is my victory. So when I stand before God, it's not going to be like, hey, did you defeat the giants in your life? I go, no, no, Jesus defeated the giants in my life. Jesus defeated the greatest giant. I rest in my champion. He, he's on my behalf. He represents me to God and me to the people. He's that. He's that, that great representative on our behalf. And that's what we want to We just want to worship King Jesus, the one who slays giants. Can we do that? Listen, again, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus more. And we'd love to just worship and honor this Jesus who, who won it all for us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Let's worship. Let's just close our time with, with worship saying, thank you, Jesus, you've won. Father, we just want to say that. Thank you. God, thank you that I'm not here trying to get the victory. That Jesus, you, you did it all. You, Jesus, paid it all. Thank you that you went on our behalf. 
that even when you came to your own and your own did not receive you, the own rejected you, the own, your own spat on you, God, even when I rejected you, God, that did not stop you still from being our champion, from being our representative. And we just want to say thank you. There is no one like you. We just want to praise you now, God, and just say you're so good. God, I just ask for people in this room who maybe still feel like they're losing over and over and over again, that they would enter into this Roman 8 life, the spirit-filled life, this life where they can know that because you are the great victor, you are the great conqueror, now we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God. We just want to praise you, worship you, sing to you, and honor you in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Guys, why don't you stand and let's just worship.